This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Laddick. Tom Walker is the president and CEO of Lionsgate Technologies, a company that designs and produces life-saving mobile medical technology. Tom has over 25 years of global medical device industry leadership. He has held senior management positions with Physio Control, Eli Lilly, Cardinal Health, and AGFA Healthcare. These positions focused on North American and international business and corporate development. He also has extensive early-stage venture experience. He has led startup initiatives, consulted with numerous early-stage medical ventures, and has participated in several successful exits. He has also led key technology transfer initiatives with the University of Waterloo, the BC Cancer Agency, and the University of British Columbia. Tom is also on the board of directors of Race Rocks Management Incorporated and Kairos Health Incorporated. I spoke with Tom in Vancouver, British Columbia. Hi, Tom. Thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today. It's a pleasure to be here, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. Where am I calling you today? I'm in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And in January of 2015, I hope that, you know, it's not too stark and cold for you. It's the warmest place in Canada. It's about 7 Celsius and a little overcast. That's awesome. Tom, Lionsgate is an interesting company and organization to me and to our listeners, specifically because you, you have this tagline that says you're socially driven. Take us through what was the what are the origins of Lionsgate? What is it that you do and, and how did you get to that point where you became a socially driven company? That's a big question. Uh, <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me go back to the beginning. I'm a, I'm a medical device guy and I've been in the medical device industry for a lot of years. And uh, I uh, moved back, back out to Vancouver. I lived here earlier in my life back uh, four or five years ago. And literally, I was watching a television program on CBC, which is our major Canadian news network. Um, and I saw two gentlemen there, one named uh, Dr. Mark Ansermino and the other one, Dr. Peter Van Dadelsen. And they're preeminent researchers at the University of British Columbia, very much focused on developing world diagnostics to support disease states like preeclampsia in women and pneumonia in children. Preeclampsia in women kill about 80,000 women, kills about 80,000 women every year and about 500,000 unborn fetuses. And undiagnosed pneumonia kills about 1.1 million children under the age of five every year. So these are big problems that are unique to the developing world. And these researchers were working on it. They had received, uh, uh, in the CBC broadcast, they were being interviewed because they had received an award from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation Grand Challenges Saving Lives at Birth grant. They had received a $250,000 grant. As they were working specifically on mobile health diagnostics for these disease states, I, being an old uh, uh, medical device guy, listened to what they were talking about, and they were talking about pulse oximetry, which is uh, measuring oxygen saturation through a clip on a patient's finger. In the developing world, it's the most important vital signs monitor because it really defines the early risks associated with these two different disease states. Uh, Depressed oxygen levels are very predictive. The problem was, as I ascertained it, was it was going to be difficult to build a very low-cost vital signs monitor that connected into their mHealth diagnostic work. And this diagnostic work was, was simple, downloadable apps that would support risk scores for these disease states to help triage patients. In any, at any rate, I went and sat down uh, with them and understood that they had developed a very inventive way of being able to access vital signs, particularly for oximetry, 
and that was by connecting through the universal audio port that's common to most any mobile device. And what that allowed them to do was, and has allowed our company to do, is to create very low-cost sensors that connect directly in through the audio port, and they are driven by the device. And why is this important? Well, if you look at how mHealth and the digital health space is growing as it relates to connecting in vital signs monitoring... When you say, uh, when, doing, just to, when you say mHealth, you mean mobile health, right? I mean mobile health, okay. yes, sorry. Uh, if, if you look at how that's happening, it's typically happening in an M-to-M or machine-to-machine way. We're connecting a blood pressure monitor via some wireless or Bluetooth method into the phone or tablet, and the blood pressure is displayed. The cost of that is, is two devices, the phone, which presumably everybody has in their pocket, that's the ubiqu- ubiquitousness of it, but also the other device. If you connect a simple sensor and drive that sensor from the phone, you're essentially eliminating the need for that separate device, leveraging the processing power, battery capability, and display capability of the phone or tablet. And this is uniquely done by using the audio port because there's energy and power that can be sourced from the port and then the information can be sent back in. So back in 2011, we started building out a company based on this technology and we built prototypes of other vital signs applications in addition to phone oximetry, which were namely blood pressure and temperature initially, proved that they could work collected up the intellectual property and filed the appropriate patent applications and then spun the business out from the University of British Columbia where this research was being done. And unpack that for me a little bit. What does that mean, collected up the appropriate intellectual property? Was was that essentially the patentable material that was was at the BC? Or was it it an acquisition of other stuff? It, It was essentially the intellectual property associated with this two way AC analog coupling, in other words, being able to communicate from the phone to drive the sensor and receive the information back in. That's what LGT Medical or Lionsgate Technologies does. We connect, we have a two-way connection that drives the sensor from the phone and then receives the information back in. That's we're leveraging the processing power of the phone as opposed to an external processor just delivering the information in. And why does this make sense? Well, because it means at scale, we should be able to build our oximeter for $5. Our blood pressure monitor, our prototype we built for $1.75 plus the price of the cuff. And essentially what it does is it extracts all, most of the cost out of an M-to-M connection by allowing us to drive very low-cost vital signs monitors. This is a perfect example of what I would describe as reverse innovation. There's many different definitions for reverse innovation. But we're looking for an opportunity to save lives in the developing world in a very big impact play. And at the same time, the innovation that gets created has tremendous application in low, middle, and high-income countries. I was just going to say, let me, let me pause your explanation there for a second because you're sitting in British Columbia and the biggest medical market in the world is just south of you. Why the developing world? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so the, at least initially why the developing world is because that's where the innovation came from. So, uh, in, in fact, the developing world was what was defined what the first application was. 
As I mentioned, oximetry has the most benefit in the developing world, and so therefore we started with pulse oximetry because we knew it would have the most impact. Mm-hmm. However, where you look where we've focused our attention in terms of beginning to drive into the market, we've launched what we call Connect Edge, which is our non-medical pulse oximetry into both the U.S. and Canada, and it's available on Amazon.com as we speak. We, we appreciate that there's, it, this is a dual market opportunity, and in the early going, we thought very carefully about building what we call a socially driven business. And what we mean by that in this particular instance is we are going to leverage significant impact and significant ROI in the developed economies, particularly North America and Europe, um, to allow us to continue to be very impactful in the developing world. And the way you do this in a way that doesn't compromise profitability is at least the way we're doing it, is we're focusing on making a very disruptive, low-cost, vital signs monitoring application that we would sell at a comparable price anywhere in the world. Our pulse oximeter, I would define as the best oximeter at the best price in the world right now, and we've, we've launched it at, uh, well, you can, you can buy it for as low as $39.95 in the U.S., Wow, that, that's, that's an amazing effort. What's it take to get a company like this off the ground? You said you started it in 2011. You, you know, you've obviously were, you've been in the business a long time. You understand it. Did you have to go out and you know, rally a, a ton of investment? Was this a bootstrap? Was, what, what was this? So initially, the startup businesses are always a little bit bootstrapped. But, but I will tell you that the first thing that I did once we started to think about making this a business was I looked at where the sources of funding were coming for them from the research. And as it turned out, it was coming from two distinct places. One, uh, in addition to the University of British Columbia, one was the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They are funding a University of British Columbia preeclampsia project. I mentioned the preeclampsia uh, to the tune of $26.5 million dollars in four, four developing world nations right now, and we're, our oximeter is involved in that process. Mm-hmm. We are known to the foundation as the phone oximeter. That was our original name of the oximeter. We now call it uh, Connect and um, Connect O2. Um, however, uh, so the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was one source of funding, and the other source of funding was what's called Grand Challenges Canada. And Grand Challenges Canada is kind of like the Canadian government equivalent of of the Gates Foundation in that our foreign affairs uh, department has provided several hundred million dollars to support developing world initiatives through an organization called Grand Challenges Canada. So I went to see them and said, one of the risks in this research is to be able to develop and commercialize the low-cost vital signs applications. We started working with them very closely and in 2013 we did what you'd call a Series A financing for with which we brought in equity and institutional financing, and it was matched up to a million dollars in a non-dilutional grant from Grand Challenges Canada. And that was their effort to say to us, because there's a large social opportunity here and a large impact opportunity here, how can we be an accelerant to bringing in equity investors to build what we would call an innovative business model around a socially driven business, uh, where there's a big opportunity for a significant return on investment, and hey, at the same time, there's 1.1 million children out there that need to be better diagnosed as it relates to pneumonia every year. 
And is this a revolving fund? This is this is a, absolutely fantastic. Do you know of other funds like this that, uh, just off the top of your head, where they're non-dilutional, they support this type of social activity? I would tell you that I think that our particular deal that was structured in 2013 was very, very unique and different. However, there's certainly a significant growth in you know what's called socially venture social venture funds that are out there that are focused on delivering strong returns but making sure that there's a, a significant impact as well. And those funds typically have different dynamics associated with how the funds can invest as opposed to a typical venture capital fund, which often will look at a socially driven business uh, with higher scrutiny because uh, of a, a risk of uh, not a, a strong sense of maximizing profits, for example. So there's that, there's that balance between being a socially driven business and making sure that you reward your investors in a way that allows you to allows you to gain funding as you need it. Sure. That you, you sort of led me to the next question that was on the tip of my tongue was, when you went out for that Series A, is there a investor profile or is there, did you find that it was a different or unique conversation when you said, you know, we want to be socially driven. We know that our goal is going to be to have impact. Is our, did you say ROI is second or how, no. how, do, you, how do you, how do you couch that? Well, you know, you're asking the best question right there is how do you find the right balance to bring together distinct types of investors? And I would tell you that when I look back at the profile of the angel slash institutional investor that came in in the Series A, they were markedly defined, I would say, as, as impact investors. Uh, people that were looking for a strong return on investment, but also recognized that this was a significant undertaking that had great value globally. I would also tell you that in my conversations with other angels and venture capitalists, that it is not uncommon to hear statements like, what's wrong with you that you need Gates Foundation money? And mm -hmm. that's just the statement of saying, if you're, folk, if you're being supported by foundation dollars, you're fundamentally unsustainable. That needs, yeah, that's the question. And, and from our perspective, what we're trying to do as a business, and I think this is very important for people to understand, is number one, we're trying to build out a disruptive technology that will allow access to vital signs monitoring to everybody that needs it. So it's a little bit of a health inequity play but a significant play that you can imagine that there's a, a woman in Cincinnati that is hypertensive that is not affording a blood pressure monitor, but she has an iPhone 6 in her pocket, and she needs to get access to that. So that and, and that little child in Uganda needs their, uh, their blood oxygen levels taken. So there's two very distinct characters, both one in a high-income environment and one in a low-income environment, that we want to get after with access. But the second thing we want to do and this is, from my perspective, as important is we want to build an innovation, innovative business model that allows us, and I'll say this poorly, but that allows us to get rich saving lives. And mm -hmm. the reason why you want to do that, the reason why you want to be able to describe a business that does that is because, well, Bill Gates will say that the reason why health inequities exist is because there's no simple business way to drive that that there's no simple way for people to be able to make money. That's why inequity exists. And so we need to win that 
argument. And we believe with this kind of technology that has huge applications in both high-income and low-income environments allows us to work with a variety of different stakeholders to win that battle, to be able to describe to people that you, you can make money and do good at the same time. And we're very focused on that. So I'm thinking of your next annual report or, you know, I, I, you're still a private company, so you don't have to file public documents. That's correct. How are you measuring the success or not of Lionsgate as of today? Is it strictly in dollars and cents terms? Do you have a number of users? What's, how are you measuring that to be able to not only report back to your investors, but to be able to put out into the world and say, we are doing good and doing well? So there's a, couple of, there's a couple of different areas that we're focused on. Number one is advancing the technology. Uh, no matter how simple and straightforward our technology sounds, using the audio port and plugging in a low-cost sensor to drive an oximeter, there's real work that's gone into building one of the most accurate, low-cost devices on the planet. And the way we've done that and the time that's taken is, well, essentially from May 2011, until today. So it takes time. And the biggest and the challenge and the measurement of our success is being defined by getting into the market and describing to the industry and the consumer the value that we can provide. And quite simply, that's a universal value of using the universal audio port and the cost opportunities we have in terms of lowering the build cost which allows us to be very, very competitive into the marketplace. The measurement of our success is being able to deliver on those devices into the marketplace, number one, and number two, starting work with industry leaders in the medical device side that are focused on the digital health space to start to integrate our connectivity into their platforms. Because in the end, what we want to be able to do is provide to anybody and everybody our connectivity to be able to reduce the cost of access to vital signs monitoring. And so it's building those partnerships and delivering the devices out into the marketplace, which I would consider our most significant milestones. Mm -hmm. And our most significant risk is to do that, you have to become an ISO 1345 certified medical device company, and you must deliver the sensors and the downloadable apps into the marketplace and build distribution channels. So probably about 75% of the, the, our costs are associated with delivering into the marketplace as opposed to just simply building out the technology. You have to describe your disruptiveness before people will pay attention and create the kind of partnerships you need to scale. But in the end, we're a company that knows what we're good at this two-way connectivity, and what we want to do is build relationships with companies that are at scale from a distribution standpoint or are at scale from a sensor manufacturing standpoint, and, and that way uh, we can scale uh, both in, in the low, middle, and high-income markets more effectively. Give us a sense, if you're willing, how big is Lionsgate? I mean, number of employees, I mean, what, what type of, are you based in one one? one building right now? It sounds, you know, you need to have this global reach and you're, you know, you, you're, you're reaching that tipping point, right? Or, the, or that gap, depending on how you look at it, where you need to be able to reach everywhere at once. How do you go about doing that? 
It's a, it's a, it's a good question. When we built out the core group, uh, we looked at a couple of things. We needed a very strong technologist, and we have that in our CTO. We wanted to work very closely with the University of British Columbia, so we created a contract research agreement with them and work with their groups. And then we hired some staff to support building out the core technology, so some uh, developers and engineers. We also have uh, product management, uh, marketing representatives, uh, and, a, and a VP of product development, which supports working with our sensor manufacturer and our software developers. To give you an idea of how big we are, I think we're nine direct employees, but if we're looking at a full-time equivalent FTE count, it's more in the neighborhood of about 20 when you pull together all the different contracts that we have with the different groups. So we're small, we're a startup company, and I would tell you that our biggest risk for success is that it is a significant cost to bring medical devices through regulatory and into the markets we want to head into, and as a consequence of that, our biggest risk is making sure that we continue to raise the funding we need to be able to do that. Wow, I love it. it when when you talk of the world-changing applications, I think in most people's minds, you just, you know, you assume there's this army behind it, and it's always, I, I always smile on the other end of the line here when I hear, you know, hey, there's really kind of 10 people pushing this forward right now. That's fantastic. It's fantastic, but it, you know. Nerve-wracking, to certain, too. <laughs> well, to, but to a certain extent, it's, it, it's rather interesting because, you know, I, I would tell you, honestly, Stephen, I've been transformed by this because I, I never really looked at things on an impact level before. And uh, Mark, and Peter and others of the researchers have, have what, really what did you look at that before before you go down that that, that yeah. path what what was your measurement what did you look at it at was it just a dollar and cents kind of thing or it, well, well it was because I was I was always involved in in the device industry in a way that was supportive of oh selling a defibrillator monitor into an ER or uh, uh, working on connectivity in the imaging space and so it was all about North American and Europe uh, health systems problems. But when you start from the, the concept that there are certain inequities that exist because there's no business model to fix them, and then you start to understand what that really means, it's challenging. And I'll give you the best example. We're going to fix this Ebola problem. But the reason why we're going to fix the Ebola problem is because we're afraid of it growing and expanding in a way that will actually affect us. The reason why so many children die of undiagnosed pneumonia is they're quietly dying at home, and we can't catch it. And that's the, that's the essence of what's really true about the dynamic of healthcare inequity, is once you really understand it, you start looking at the problem you're dealing with, like 80,000 women dying of preeclampsia, where less than 150 die in the developed world, mm -hmm. and you realize this is a social injustice. This is much more than a functional issue with a device that we're selling into an ER. And it changes you a little bit. It, 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 I don't know whether it's for the better or for the worse, but it changes you. It changes the way you think about things. But what's interesting is, is at the same time, as you're building the business, the economics of it keeps pulling you from Uganda to Cincinnati. It, it's sure. pulling you in a way of solving problems in the developed world, not in the developing world. And that's where all the balance needs to be managed. So it's, it's quite fascinating to 
kind of go through that transition of really looking at what I would define to be a serious problem space. You just talked about sort of your personal transformation, and I'm going to assume that maybe your aha moment was that interview that you watched where you said, hey, there's an opportunity here. And, you know, your subsequent conversations maybe convinced you this is, you know, this is the right path I want to, I want to see. Have there, along the way over the past three years here, four years, have there been other either really surprising or aha moments where you didn't, you, you were, you were going down the path of building your, your sensor or building out your technology and you found an unintended use for it or you heard about a story about somebody who adopted it and, and are using it for something you completely didn't intend or anything like that? I'll, I'll give you a kind of a negative aha moment. I don't mean to be negative, but um, we, one of the things that we've been working on as we've been looking at raising money is, is, of course, talking to what we would call social venture funds. So funds that are a little, little bit more focused on impact. And what's my little aha moment about that is that is a highly competitive space with much less discretionary dollars. And as a consequence of that, like in any other uh, venture fund, uh, you get measured up against other opportunities that are out there. Good ones, real good ones. There's a lot of really good work being done in the impact space. And so as a consequence, the fact that we have a very, you know, a, a strong social venture aspect to what we're doing and a nice dual market opportunity, which makes it easier to see us ultimately become very sustainable and very profitable, you're, you're being measured up against other types of social venture businesses that may be easier to calculate a, a profitability coefficient on or uh, has actually a bigger potential to save lives in the immediate future. And my, my point to all of that is, is it, doesn't, it, it doesn't necessarily take you to a space where you can find solid impact investors, uh, and that's any simpler than it would be in, uh, raising money through a normal venture capital stream. Mm. Uh, and that, that was surprising to me. And when you go back and you, you think about the, the moments of decision-making moving forward with this company, when we first made the decision-making in conjunction with Grand Challenges Canada, that we should be a for-profit venture. And you think about that fork in the road, once you decide you're going to be a for-profit venture, that means you set up a company in a very particular way. And that way is setting up a, a company so that there can be a return on investment. And that makes you – that. Uh, you are viewed very differently in the world than if you set up a not-for-profit venture and go uh, a separate route. And honestly, I'm not sure to this day whether that was the right decision or not. I think it was because we're trying to solve the bigger issue of being able to create sustainable, profitable businesses that have impact. But there is a case to be made that it does make it more difficult to access the funds you need to develop. You've you've led me to another question that I find well, it'll be interesting to see where we go with this. Many of the people listening to this podcast come from what I would call the traditional humanitarian aid or international development sector, uh, and that's government grants, that's big NGOs, that's donor dollars. Do you interact with that universe? Do you do you? I, I, I... We do. Uh, we do. Um, in fact, I'm working with Mark Ansermino, who's our chief medical officer and also our, our strongest UBC connection, and one of those guys on that first, uh, first video I saw. And we are constantly involved in the grant process where 
part of the work being done for a particular grant is the development of our technology associated with a preeclampsia or pneumonia project in the developing world, uh, whether it be Gates Foundation money. There, there's a lot of calls for proposals in that world. The challenge with that, from our perspective, is that world views us as a profit center. That world doesn't view us as the research community. And so you find yourself kind of in the middle ground where what you're trying to explain to people is unless there's a good way to commercialize this, it's just a good research project. You're never going to be able to get the technology to the people that need it. And so we're trying to make the point that it's critical for those types of organizations to also look and fund the private groups that are trying to bring the products to scale. And part of the method in our madness, in the way we think about things, is the more we can get involved in some of these key initiatives with our phone auximeter connected into an application that needs that data and needs it at a very good cost, the more likely we are to be backstopped by the foundations that are actually funding those programs. I mentioned that the preeclampsia work we're involved in is a $26.5 million trial, if you will. It's called the CLIP trials. And this is a very significant undertaking of which auximetry is a major part of it. And we are funding that part of that exercise right now at an expense to us. And as a consequence of that, we think that's a good thing because it creates a dependency on us, but it is challenging because the funding's gone to the research, not to the scaling of our product. Mm-hmm. We're, we're trying to jump that chasm a little bit in, t- in discussions with the Gates Foundation and other foundations associated with what we're doing. Um, one, one thing I might want to mention here is, is it's interesting, is on some level, people have said to us, why don't you just build a very low-cost blood pressure monitor and get it into Walmart and get safe and successful and then build out the other things. And there's a a pretty strong case to be made for that. The other side of it, though, is where our pull comes from is is from the developing world. Uh, Because of our relationship with the Gates Foundation, but particularly with Grand Challenges Canada, I've sat in front of the Secretary General of the UN, Ban Ki-moon, and explained our technology to him and to the head of the World Health Organization. We are in very interesting places as a consequence of the frugal way we're attacking this opportunity. Having said that, that doesn't necessarily pay the bills, but it does tell us that we're doing the right things. The challenge now is converting that into escalating and scaling a business that creates a solid return on investment and at the same time saves these lives. Can you, can you point to us about a time over the last three years when you just flat out failed, either during one of these trials that you're in or you had a, a piece of the technology that you were going in a direction that you had to abandon and, and how you bounced back from that or how you, you know, rallied your team to keep it going? Sure, I can. Uh, it's a hard one to set up. <laughs> but, uh, the risk in this revolves around two things from my perspective, in addition to the funding. One is that the technology plays itself out well. And our technology is heavily dependent on the audio subsystem of devices. And while the iOS framework of Apple is fairly consistent, Androids are all over the map as far as how they're technically building their hardware. I'm not the best guy to explain this, but the reality is, is that's a challenge. It's a challenge because certainly in the global space, the Android space is is where you want to connect in the best. Mm -hmm. 
And so what we've been able to do to get uh, through that, I mean, it was tough at the beginning. We realized, geez, I don't even know if we're going to be able to get to Android, and that would be extremely limiting. Uh, but what we did was we, we, uh, we determined a way of being able to connect in commonly in the Android space is, is the, well, what's, what's consistent there is, is a micro USB. So as a consequence of that, we've built a small little adapter, which is an audio bridge that allows our technology to work either through the audio port or the USB. And that was a big risk point and a big problem for us for a long time that we had to overcome. And in overcoming it, it created other opportunities because now we can do multi-parameter devices. Uh, so we're looking at, at partnering with companies that have now driven down the price of a tablet to sub $40 so that we can imagine having an, an anesthesia monitoring system for a surgery center in a developing world country that's built for under $100. You know, I, you know it, as I explained during our prep for this call, I'm, I'm sitting in Costa Rica, one of the aha moments I had was here just in the last Christmas season that I, w- I happened to be strolling through, funny enough, a Walmart, and a woman a woman caught the fact that I was sort of looking at some of these little toy computers for children. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, have, I have a couple, couple of children. And she just, she tapped me on the shoulder and said, you, you know, sort of, sort of gave me the shake. Even though I really wasn't looking at them, she just gave me a shake. And I, so I asked her, what do you mean? And she said, well, why would you buy one of these when across the store you can buy a tablet for cheaper? Than yeah. what these little plastic and it would that was just a, a fundamental mind blowing experience to me that we've entered a, a place now where I can get an iPad equivalent or an Android pad equivalent for less than Hasbro can make something now. It's amazing. Right. And that was an astute comment. You know, one of the things we've looked at is when you look at how the industry is starting to develop in the mobile health space, it, it really initially has gone after fitness enthusiasts and mountain climbers and the like uh, in high-income environments. So the Fitbits and lots of different technologies like that. If we look at what iHealth is doing, they're connecting machines to machines in a very reasonably cost-effective way uh, and really focused on high-income markets. It's more of a wellness market and a a consumer-based self-evaluation type market. And I think that's a, a, a perfect way to start into this kind of digital health space. Having said that, what our focus is, on, is trying to be on is, is sick people. We want to make sure that people have the ability of simply, simply being able to monitor their degree of sickness or wellness. And so we think about things more like we, we've always thought about a thermometer sitting in your junk drawer at home. In that drawer, you should be able to pull out a cuff that just plugs into your phone. You should be able to pull out a thermometer that just plugs into your phone. Anything, an oximeter, just plugs into your phone. And then it's a connected vital signs monitor that can be, you can upload the data to any group that happens to be accessing data from our application. And you're ready to go. And so we've, we haven't thought about it. We haven't changed where you put the cuff on the arm. We have, we're not trying to change things. We're just saying there's a very inexpensive way of being able to determine your wellness. And we're trying to focus on that. And the good news is that that'll make it afforded, affordable for the diagnostic products that are needed for community healthcare workers in Mozambique. In the, in the developing world, I can see where there would be enthusiasm around your product immediately simply because of the affordability of it and the access issue. 
Sure. Do you find in the developed world a different reaction from established doctors or health practitioners who either say, I like what I've got, or this can't be a high quality device, or what about access, you know, safety of information, these kinds of things? Have you met resistance in that way? I think this is more of a generic response for anybody that is, is, is moving into this space is there over the, you know, historically, there's been a natural reluctance for physicians in North America to give up their, their leverage uh, and their position on things. But the challenge is, is um, and I kind of describe it this way, is that now when I go to my doctor, he's generally sitting in front of a computer and he's got Google up. And, and the reason why he does is, is because he knows I know, and I've read all the scholarly articles on my chronic conditions, whatever they might be. Sure. And, and so he has to be ready for that. And so, the, so there's a natural reluctance of the medical community to be overly empowering to the patient. Uh, but the patient's not listening to that in general. And just like diabetics have been screening themselves at home for years, there's been a strong trend recently for people uh, of chronic hypertension to be screening themselves. There's lots of evidence that the home and remote patient monitoring market, uh, while a little bit nascent still, is really going to take off. But to a certain extent, that's going to come from the med- pressure on the medical community to appreciate the fact that there's true opportunity here to lower health care costs significantly, reduce readmits into hospital, and to empower the patient to appreciate and self-diagnose to a certain extent. There's a regulatory aspect to this that's tricky, though. You know, it, it really is. How, when, when do you act on low oxygen levels? Uh, how do you think through that? Uh, what should a device do if the blood pressure readings are greater than 10% different within five minutes of one another. There's lots of things to think through in this. The great news is, is the communication platform that we're connecting into can provide all of that. I have a couple more questions for you. This is a fascinating conversation that we could probably carry on for the next three hours, at least in my mind. But the question I want to ask right now is about you and your position, particularly you were, you know, you were at the genesis of Lionsgate. You not only saw that interview, but then seems you you sort of ushered this whole process through to, to you know to this place where now where you're marketizing and you know bringing these products online. What's a typical day look like for you if there is one? And you know how often are you traveling to the field? How are you managing your day to to run this company, to run this startup? Well, let me just say that if I didn't have the group of people that I've hired, I'd be in a lot of trouble. First of all, I have a guy that's the technical lead. I have a guy that's the product lead. I have a person that's the marketing lead and promotional folks and stuff like that. So we have, I have a team that's really driving product development very effectively and, and parts, pieces of business development. I tend to empower them because they're a lot smarter than me. And I'm sadly focused, well, not sadly, I'm, I'm focused on two things, on business development, particularly with industry connections. I, I want to make sure that we have good interest from, you know, the right medical device company in Mumbai or the, 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 the right groups uh, in the U.S. And so I'm doing a lot of that work. But I would tell you that at least half my time is focused on raising money. 
I will be at the, uh, for example, down in San Francisco at the J.P. Morgan Conference next week for two days. And that's because there's a constant focus on we need to raise, we need to have the kinds of dollars that allow us to drive to, in through to sustainability. And when you're building medical devices, rather than just a technology platform, it means you have all the expenses of regulatory and all the things that that brings, and, and that is not inconsequential. So fundraising and business development is, is my focus. If I didn't have the staff I'd have, I have, I'd have a lot more administrative and operational detail that I'd have to deal with. Is there any one piece of technology, and I'm thinking productivity or you know, scheduling, communication, that you, you couldn't live without? In advance of this interview, we talked about email. Uh, I, I would tell you that I, I'm a, you know, I've been spending most of my time pitching and things like that, so that the technology simply around being able to... I, I remember years ago, I'm old enough that I would create acetates and mail them to clients before I went and used an overhead projector. I'm not sure if any. I'm not sure if the majority of our audience even know what an acetate is. So. I, I know, I know, but 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 my point is 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 that now I find that just the simple technologies that I use uh, to present with are really important to me. In that you need to be flexible and change these things almost daily new happenings, new milestones get created. And so, the, you know, the, 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 the pat answer that everybody would give, I think, would be, I can't live without my computer. But from my standpoint, that's where the most productivity gains have occurred in the last 20 years, is being able to be very adaptive and resilient to, to the changes that you learn about every day in your business, and to be able to then describe those out to the world. I'm going to lie, unfortunately. I've now, I really do have two more questions. When you're going down there, let's just say you're going to go to the J.P. Morgan conference next week in San Francisco, how much of the stories are true with venture funds or when you get in front of someone, do you really have 30 seconds essentially to catch someone's attention? Uh, are, you um, give, are you given a set of time? Do you have scheduled interviews? How does that work in your... Now, I, I've never been to this conference before, but I've been told by people that have that you find yourself sitting on a stairway pitching. For me, I'm actually technically not going to the conference. I'm going there because that's where people are that I set up appointments to talk to. Mm-hmm. But I would tell you that, you know, so one said, I know, I know a staircase in the Fairmont we could sit on, sit down at. So, <laughs> that's beautiful. Uh, so it is true, but to a, at least from my perspective, I'm actually meeting with several Canadian VCs down there, and I'm also meeting with a number of folks that hopefully will connect me to some uh, venture funds and some venture capitalists, uh, American venture capitalists as well. Uh, and in most cases, what I've done is tried to establish an appointment in a room where I can present, and it's a minimum of an hour. And I do that because the story takes a little bit of time. And probably to answer your question, yes, you do need an elevator pitch that says something to the effect of, you know, I've got a connectivity platform that is essentially going to gut the cost of vital signs monitoring. Would you like to hear about it? You need to have that. But in the, in, 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 once you have somebody's attention, you need to garner half an hour or an hour and walk through a well-defined set of slides that leads to more due diligence. That's been my experience in my life as I've raised money before. And you, you need to really know who it is you're talking to. Uh, I've talked a lot today about our global initiative and the social venture side of our business. If you looked at my, just my standard slide deck, it would 
describe that, but more in a derivative way to the enormous North American opportunity that we have, because that's true. And that is better uh, fed to people that are more on the ROI side of the social venture continuum. Mm. So last question is one that I, I end every interview with here on terms of reference, and that's, you, you know, you woke up in 2011 and found yourself embarking on this new venture. It's socially driven. It has an impact model. Uh, what advice would you give to someone who's either, you know, making that decision right now to transition their career into a more, so, you know, social enterprise or, or even a more traditional development or aid career? And what's your critical advice for how you create success or, or how you, what, you know, what you do over again or do differently creating a socially driven business? Yeah, you know, it, it really depends on the specific opportunity. What I would tell people is that it's no easier, but way more rewarding. The number of times Mark Ansermino, our CMO, has sat me down and said, you know, Tom, this is a long haul. And, and he's done that because when you think about some of these global initiatives, they are really big challenges that require patience and focus and effort and diligence and tenacity. Um, but whether you succeed or fail trying, the reward is in a- attempting to right a wrong, uh, shift the social injustice, do something that matters in a very, very compelling way. And that's why the part of the business that I appreciate the most is trying to be innovative. I've said the thing that we need to do here is figure out a way from a business perspective to put the Gates Foundation out of business. Uh, You know, in other words, really what we need to do is reduce our dependency on philanthropy and figure out ways to make sustainable businesses that cure the ills that we're not thinking about and should be. So it's terribly rewarding, but you, you really need to be able to think through an initial business model because that's where the challenge will lie always. Tom, thank you so much for your time today. I really, really appreciate it. Stephen, it's been my pleasure. Thanks. You've been listening to the Terms of Reference podcast from aidpreneur.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes.